sexual health, which is allied to reproductive health, but it's not the same by any means. And especially talk about dirty work, when I transformed my career from being a, working in obstetrics and gynaecology to sexual health, I was warned, don't do it, it's dirty work. Um, so actually that spoke very loudly to me. It's very um, common phenomenon for doctors to be accused of doing dirty work. I've called this the concealed blossom because we're going to think about what causes stigma and shame in uh, sex and sexual health. And the reason for the title, I hope, will become apparent by the end. So I was looking through it, and of course, stigma begins with STI, doesn't it? And who cannot, <laughs> who cannot accept that? We all accept that. Um, and I want us to be thinking, because it's a workshop, I want us to really think about these things. I have to make a slight apology because I want to talk about stereotypes and things. I won't be looking at anyone's blushes as we talk about sex acts and so on, which I like to do to medical students. We won't be doing any of that, but we do need to think about our own um, contribution towards the stigma of sexual health. And when we think about it, I thought, what will I cover in first minutes? We'll look at the landscape of sex. It's something that we're all connected to, whether through our own acts, whether through what we see, what we talk about, the dichotomies, intrinsic in sex, and the disease body, which is a good bit to cover. And in Ireland, obviously, you've just had this book published, Bear. Some of you might have seen it or not. It's an account of real um, Irish women's sexual fantasies. Just come out. Fascinating piece of work. The rubric says the best thing is some woman has written her fantasy in Irish. Well, great, but, but that's not really what it's all about at all. What's fascinating about the cover of this book, of course, is that this is a book about female fantasies, and on the front is a naked woman. And the majority of female fantasies in the book are not about a naked woman, so who is this appealing to? Is this appealing to men who would like a, a bit of... Um, intrusion into um, sexual fantasies? <coughs> don't know. And there's the eternal question. Um, I'm sorry, that's projected quite small. It says, I wish weight was like virginity. Once you lose it, there's no getting it back. And that's very true of virginity. And here we have Sharon Stone being um, pictured with a toy boy, sexually experienced. So the eternal question is, do we want ourselves to be sexually experienced and knowledgeable and therefore have gone through the risks and accumulated the experience? Or do we want to be virginal? And equally, what do we want in our partners? And that's a question that underlies some of the stigma of sexual health because being experienced could be positive in some circumstances and in some circumstances negative. Equally, the concept of being a virgin We've seen movies. What's about the 40-year-old virgin? I couldn't bear to watch that. 40-year-old virgin, what's the problem there? He's a virgin at 40. Well, he's transgressed our uh, nominal needs, so we've lost the virginity by a time point. So what's the landscape of sex? Well, I thought I'd take us through a garden first, and you, you will follow me. It's not like my garden. 
But this is about norms and what's good. So of course we have at the top, we've got a field of wild oats. And what else is a young boy's dream but to go and spread his wild oats around? This is a concept of the male sexuality. It's good to go out, it's good to drop these seeds which may or may not fertilise other people. And that's a positive thing, or it's sold as a positive thing. And then we keep on in our natural uh, things because of course he needs his nuts to do this with. <laughs> And we talk about nuts a lot, don't we, in masculinity. I thought that was fantastic, Janice, when we really... The, the concept of this person moving from disabled to being this masculine, powerful, full-bodied young man, you know, that's the pro, that's the good thing. And the nuts, you know, they're, they're strong, it's hard to crack a nut, but inside there's that hidden fruit. <laughs> and when he's out cracking his nuts, he may of course be popping some cherries. And here we have the cherries, and this has got the redness that is a, a, attractive and is symbolic of sexual prowess, sexual availability. Of course, we, if we want to buy sex, we go to a red light district, don't we? Red is very uh, powerful colour. And then the last bit of the garden, and this definitely isn't part of my garden, is the orchid, and this is so symbolic of sex. It's actually the emblem of the British Association for Sexual Health. And there are obvious parallels we can draw between some depictions of the external female genitalia and the orchid. And let's take us back to an older phrase. What do we do with a virgin? We deflower a virgin. And then we come right to the concept of fertility and good and growth, of flowering and deflowering, and of that connection with um, nature that we even see is very good now. I mean, organic is king or queen in the 21st century, isn't it? So this is part of what adds to stigma because we have very clear notions in our minds, either as a group or as individuals, about what represents good sex or what represents normal sex. So that's the beginning of stigma. We feel able to define in a context what we feel is normal. But then we've got an overlay of cultural change, haven't we? And let's, let's think about it a bit more. I couldn't resist the handcuffs and the tie of Mr. Grey. And there's no, no way we can't say that this has impacted uh, in the past few years on concepts of sex. Apparently when it was published, some DIY stores were running out of rope and tie up things because people were so inspired to go and try this form of sex. But not everyone thinks that's normal or desirable. So we're beginning to see the start of sexual tribalism and sexual separation. Is this a right thing or a wrong thing? We can certainly laugh about it, but is it right or wrong? Our secret to a happy marriage with swingers. Well, some people, uh, the, someone used a great phrasing clinic with me the other day, they're polyamorous, they've got multiple boyfriends. Not polygamous, not multiple uh, partners with whom they've married or formed a union, but polyamorous. And that might be some people's secret to a good sex life. But we have feelings about whether that's right or wrong. We have two men holding hands. I did pick this picture on purpose because it's, it's not symbolic of the traditional gay man who might be weaker or more feminine. These are two uh, muscular-looking boys. And, you know, Ireland has recently shown the way in asking its people what it thinks about gay marriage, and people voted. Um, 
but not everyone felt the same. And this is stigma and sexual tribalism. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show, well, that's, that's inspiring for any number of means, but it might be that someone want, wishes to change their clothing to enjoy sex, or to self-titillate, or to titillate others. But not everyone accepts this, and so this contributes towards stigma and tribalism. But then we have to go a step further about what is forbidden in some cultures or some understandings. This picture of the woman under the lamp, it's meant to symbolise uh, prostitution or selling sex, however it's called, commercial sex work. Legal in some cultures and countries, illegal in others, frowned upon in some circumstances, accepted in others. It's very interesting to note that it's usually the seller of sex who is prosecuted or seen as the bad person rather than the buyer of sex. But then we move on to things that might be even more forbidden. Uh, this, uh, and believe me, it was hard to find tasteful pictures for this talk, okay? So I hope you can accept what, what the work I've done for this. But this, uh, this um, man being licked by a bear, bestiality is a definite transgression in many cultures sexual congress between men and women. Uh, men and women. <laughs> Which one's the animal? Uh, the men between a human and an animal. Definitely, definitely found upon in most cultures. And that's a stigma. But there are people who find this sexually appealing. And they are stigmatised. And then we have this picture of a 15-year-old escaping with her teacher. That's kind of symbolic of two things. That's the power struggle uh, or the power differential between a partner. It is not thought right in our culture to take advantage uh, of someone else, whether they might wish to or not, because we're worried if they wish to or if they control enough power. And of course, a 15-year-old in England is considered a child still. And this is a very tasteful depiction of the thought of paedophilia, a stigmatised sex act. So there's a lot of stigma. So we, we've gone from what we consider to be normal, to what some people consider normal, to things that are considered so far off the normal pathway, we're beginning to see laws intervening. And so that begins stigma. And sex is full of dichotomies. No talk would be complete without talking about the gender differences between expectations and stigmas in sex acts and sexual behaviours. Uh, I've gone back to mythology to think about this. We've got on the left, of course, a nymph, a nice woodland um, creature or fairy who might be beautiful, but she does not need permission from her male owners to have sex, which is great. Um, but furthermore, in medicine, we have nymphomania, so not only are you permitted to want to have a lot of sex, you are in a mania, which is a pathological condition, so a nymphomania. But then the opposite in the male, rather than being a nymphomania, the correct term for a male is a satyriasis, behaviour like a satire. Now, a satire was a, a, 
a creature with um, horse's legs and then, as all mythologies get transposed, it gained goat's legs. But satire is the embodiment of masculinity, just like this, and it was very hard to get an appropriate picture of a satire. Um, but he's big, he's muscular, he's hairy, he's well endowed, he's allowed and permitted as much sex as he wants, because that is the behaviour of a satire. And we see that translate all the way through to modern days. It's different sexual expectations for men and women. We've got things about what's good and what's bad, and when is good good, and when is good bad, and when is bad good in sex, because sometimes we might want sex with a bad boy or a bad girl, rather than a good boy or a good girl. And this is full of imagery, so we're judging these tribes, and uh, I'm sorry to all these actors that I've categorised them, and you might categorise them differently, but here we've got Christina Aguilera, and she's got that symbolism, she's got that red, she's got those red fingernails, she's got that red dress, she's got some flesh on display, um, blonde depiction, sometimes uh, seen as associated with certain characters. We've got Colin Farrell, dark, you know, if men are bad, they're tall, dark and handsome, he's got that bearded look and I'm pointing to my face but I don't mean anything by that. He's got his left earring which is really important because the right earring might indicate you're homosexual whereas the left earring is usually considered to be heterosexual in some coding methodologies. And then we've got the good people. You know, Ronan Keating, and we know he's been bad, but he looks like he's a good boy. But he's got that clean-shaven look, and he's blonde and blue-eyed. So boy, blonde, blue eyes, good depiction. Quiet boys, blonde, blue eyes. And we've got the good girl, you know, virgin or white, that nice depiction, most flesh-covered. Um, she's got that smile. She doesn't look like she's trying to be sexually appealing. So she's considered good. So it's tribalism. We think about beautiful and ugly when we think about sex. And a duff designated ugly fat friend. What a wicked thing to say. And it's this one at the front who's meant to be the designated ugly fat friend. And she's not fat. She's not uh, ugly. Um, but she's showing perceptions that she might be. She's wearing dungarees. She makes no effort. You know. The beautiful friend is a couple of steps behind. She is wearing white, but we can see the heave of her cleavage. We can see that blonde hair depiction that Hollywood loves again. And those red lips, all those things that make her bad. And then we've got someone who's beautiful. And again, and I, I, I did reconsider this this morning. I thought I'd, I'd put a lot of blonde people. But beautiful life, you know, it is about being blonde. Blonde is beautiful. And then... Goffman got mentioned in this session. I thought it does wrap together because this is about tribalism and understanding of your belonging to a tribe, understanding other people's belonging to your tribe and how you can overcome that and negotiate that. So Goffman talks about an overt stigma. When we think about sex, let's think about sexual diseases for a second. So an overt stigma might be genital warts or genital herpes. You can see this. It's a very visible thing talks about a deviation stigma, which is where your behaviour deviates from what's the accepted norm. And we've just gone through lots. Everyone has got a different accepted norm in this room of what they think about sex. And then we've got tribal stigma. So that's a perceived behaviour amongst a tribe 
that may or may not occur, but is seen as less favourable. So, for instance, very interesting tribal stigma we always think about in sexual health is that most uh, gay men or men who have sex with men are perceived to have anal sex, whereas that's probably not always the case. Many gay men don't have anal sex at all. But the tribal stigma often focuses on that. We talk, uh, especially in US discourse, when the talk is about sodomites and so on, whereas it's probably not even applicable. And then people can relate to these stigmas by being stigmatised or being normal, so that's part of the prevalent view, or they can be wise, and those are the people at the edges. So, um, for instance, I would be, when I was told that's dirty work, I was joining the wise part of the tribe. So although I might not have a sexual disease, I'm associating very clearly with people with sexually transmitted diseases, because that's the people doing my work. I will advocate for them, and so they will happily accept me and talk to me about those things until I'm a wise member. And then we have to think about the disease body. And many people think about diseases in uh, very broad biomedical terms. So all the rhetoric and rubric is about it's good and bad because of death and so on. But I want to just think about it today about choices and risk aversion, where stigma comes from. Because many of the people I see in clinic, a lot of their stigma and fear is the judgment that comes from their evidence of possibly having taken a bad choice or having taken a high risk. And that's where a lot of the stigma of public health rhetoric comes from. So that's when I see a person uh, with HIV, they say, I took the risk, I got drunk, perhaps. And then I got HIV because I didn't use the condom. And so their stigma is being transmitted, not through the fact of having the disease, but the stigma of having made a bad choice, a similar stigma to the obese person. It's like we're in a risk-averse society. The 21st century is all about choice and our exercising of will and our aversions to bad choices. And a lot of the stigma of sexual health and sex is the stigma associated with the evidence of having been a bad risk taker or a bad choice maker. I picked these two posters. I mean, I really love this one. She may be a bag of trouble, syphilis and gonorrhea. I mean, what a nasty thing to say. A bag, it's all that, that's got all the baggage of her being a bag as a woman and the bag, of course, may be symbolic of the disease vagina for her. She's that bag containing all that trouble that you don't wish to open. Um, it's not your fault for going there, it's her fault. She's the bag of trouble. Uh, I'm a child of the 80s. This was on television. Don't die of ignorance. AIDS. This is the tombstone campaign. Don't die of ignorance. And suddenly we can see the relationship building up, can't we? The stigma of catching AIDS was the stigma of being stupid. It was not the stigma of a disease. It was the stigma of you did that incorrectly. Associated with that, of course, thinking of Goffman, it's the stigma of having gone perhaps from a concealed status, where you might have been a, a man having sex with men who concealed that status, to catching a disease of gay men, as it was in the UK in the early 80s. 
And so suddenly your status was revealed. You had to move to that stigmatised group. And we'd hope it would be different in the 21st century, but it isn't. Um, we've got this poster from the NHS and this poor woman's knickers say, I've got syphilis. Well, if everyone's underpants said what they had, I, I wouldn't have a job. Um, the likelihood is she hasn't got syphilis anyway, because the outbreak in the UK and Ireland is, all, is mostly mediated through men who have sex with men. So that's not even very likely, but we see the woman is still taking the blame for syphilis in the early 21st century, whether it's true or not. Far more fascinating, but also terrifying, is this time Truvada Horn. Now, let me explain that. You may have been aware that there's been very recent research that if you take this pill called Truvada, which has got two HIV drugs in it, and you're HIV negative, you reduce your risk of contracting HIV. It's called PrEP. Fantastic news, we think. But what has disastrously appeared is this notion of being a Truvada whore. So if you take Truvada, you are willfully accepting that you're going to be having unprotected sex with people, and therefore you are advertising your sexual promiscuity and availability, and therefore you are retranslated from someone who is being uh, taking this tablet to prevent yourself catching a disease, which is what we thought the rhetoric was about, to someone who is being willfully promiscuous. Which is really worrying because we can suddenly see that all our arguments, and I think this is really worrying for doctors, of we're doing it for better health and so on, we can see those dissolving because it's not true. The baseline judgment about how much sex you should be having and with whom is there. Because if this, my argument is true, I only care to prevent you getting something, then the concept of Truvada Hall would not exist. Because he's taken it so he doesn't get it. Whereas the judgment lies in the fact that he's having too much sex. And it's terrifyingly reminiscent of the arguments about contraception, why women shouldn't be allowed contraception because they allow people to be promiscuous. So I've run through it and come to the end, and, I, and because there's a lot to cover, and it's quite a separate thing from reproduction sex, because reproduction is not the core function of sex necessarily in the 21st century. Probably has never been. And it's all about this concealed blossom. Do I belong to the tribe with whom I'm speaking when I reveal my sexual mores? Will they accept it? Will they decry it? Or furthermore, are my sexual mores so off the scale that there may be criminal sanctions about it? And so when we think of stigma and sex, we really should consider that the stigma is about that fear of being laid bare and being interrogated and not further than being uh, interrogated to be criminalised or to be demonised. And that's it. Thanks.